invite you to turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, as we continue our look at some of the passion parables of Jesus. As you're turning to Scripture, just a note a little bit on on our Bibles. (laughs) It was brought up this past week, and so I just want to address it, that uh, for the last couple of months, I've been actually uh, using a Bible that's slightly different in some places than the Pew Bible. Some of you may have noticed that. Others may have gone right past it. I am using the NIV, but what you may not know is that 10 years ago, the NIV updated its translation. And so in 2011, the NIV came out with a new translation. Uh, It's just minor things along the way. In fact, I compared the translation of this morning's reading uh, with the Pew Bibles, and there are only two differences, and they're just uh, differences of wording uh, of uh, different sentence structures. Uh, So they did that kind of without telling anybody. But when I went to buy a pulpit Bible because mine was falling apart and Lorinda didn't want me to come up here with duct tape all over my Bible, uh, I could only get the newest uh, version of it. The other one's long gone. So hopefully you can tolerate that and and, and, uh, as those little differences come that they won't be uh, major things. So just a note on that. We have been looking over the last couple of weeks... uh, as we find ourselves in the season of Lent, on what Jesus was thinking about and talking about during that Passion Week, during the time between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, what was on Jesus' mind? And we find that, in fact, Matthew in particular records a whole bunch of parables that Jesus told during that time. The other gospel writers don't get as heavily into those those parables, Uh, But Matthew does. It's kind of interesting that Luke only records one parable. That was the one we looked at last week, which Matthew also recorded. But I wanted to look at it from Luke because Luke makes it the centerpiece of the entire Passion uh, Week. And it's interesting because Luke is actually the one who has the vast majority of parables in the Gospels, but just not during the Passion Week. So the rest of the parables we look at are going to be from Matthew. We saw Jesus enter into Jerusalem and overturn the money changers' tables, weep over Jerusalem for its coming destruction. And then he tells the parable of the tenants, which kind of tells the story of what's happening. God sends his his son, like the owner of the vineyard, sends his son, and they kill him because they want to run things themselves. We're going to hear something kind of similar to that today, only we move from a vineyard image to the image of a banquet. So let's pick it up at Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14, the parable of the wedding banquet. <clears throat> Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more more servants saying, Tell those who had been invited, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf have been butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. 
Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Would you join me in prayer before we look further at God's Word? Holy Spirit, we pray that you would take these words that Matthew recorded, that Jesus spoke, and even as you had been involved in the inspiration of the writing and remembrance of these words, we pray that you would be involved in the inspiration of these words to our lives to help us know what we have to learn, the challenges that we have to take or the comfort or encouragement that we can take from this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago now, Grand Rapids was in the news with the funeral of President Gerald Ford. I was actually, I was in Big Rapids at the time, and I actually got rerouted from the the funeral procession because I was making a visit to, I think it was Blodgett Hospital, and the, and the uh, route to the funeral, to the, to the uh, church was right near that place. And it was a big deal in Grand Rapids. Of course, it was a big deal elsewhere, too. There was also a funeral in California where the Fords lived at the time, and there was a funeral because he was president in Washington, D.C. But in Grand Rapids... While most of the other places were just filled with dignitaries, especially Washington, D.C. and Grand Rapids, there were many opportunities for common folk to pay their respects as well. Maybe some of you even went to the the Ford Museum and, and paid your respects at that time. And others gathered around outside the church where the funeral uh, was, in, was being carried on. <clears throat> but for the most part, getting in was the dignitaries. You had to be somebody. You had to know somebody. But imagine, if you would, that in these, all these funerals for Gerald Ford, that all of the dignitaries turned down the invite. Maybe they didn't like the president, or they were protesting his pardon of Richard Nixon, so that hundreds of spots suddenly opened for common folk to come in. It's hard to imagine something like that happening. It would be greatly insulting to the memory of the president and to his family. But Jesus tells a parable about precisely such an insult to a king. And in kingdom parables, we know that the king is always God. Jesus is in Jerusalem, his face set toward the the cross. But what's on his mind? He's just told a shocking parable against the religious leaders referring to their failure to lead Israel in a God-honoring way so that God was going to take leadership away from them. And he made clear that the real authority resided with God's Son, who despite their murder of him, is going to get the last laugh. 
And that riles them up. And they renew their plan to arrest and kill him. And now Jesus tells a second parable in response to their reaction. In fact, this is one of the places I wish the NIV had updated their translation. The very first two words of Matthew 25 in Greek are not there in English. Kai apokrithes, and in response, Jesus told them this parable. And in response, I don't know why they, why they left that out. But Matthew tells us that it's in response to their reaction. Their response to understanding that Jesus is talking about them. Their response to wanting to arrest him and kill him. That Jesus tells this parable. So this parable is spoken directly to those plotting religious leaders. What can we learn from it? Well, first of all, the parable is about, to use Jesus' proverbial phrase at the end, about the many who are invited. It's about God's gracious invitation to his kingdom. Now, we've defined kingdom in the past as God's rule over one's life, God's kingship, God's lordship over us. It's an invitation that Jesus is now renewing. He, he started when he started his ministry, his earthly ministry, and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And those words literally mean the kingdom of heaven is here. And now he renews it by telling a story. A king is holding a wedding banquet for his son, the prince. He invites a number of people, mostly dignitaries, who would be expected to show up to honor the king, but also to express acceptance of the prince as their future king. Now, any good Jew would know Jesus is talking about God the king. And the banquet represented the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like a banquet, Jesus starts out with. But we know it not only from there, because the Old Testament is also filled with references of the future kingdom of God as a banquet. So such a parable was common with the rabbis. They told all kinds of king parables, like Jesus did. But Jesus throws in a twist. This is not merely a banquet. This is a wedding feast for the prince. That is, the focus is not so much on the king, but the focus is on his son, the prince. And of course, given Jesus' identification with the son in the previous parable, everyone would know that Jesus is referring to himself as the prince. So think of the ramifications. Jesus is, is calling himself their future king. Not to mention son of God. This would have been absolutely shocking. But not as shocking as what comes next. The dignitaries refuse the king's invitation. Not, not just once, but twice. Now, in that society, uh, invitations were sent twice. <clears throat> the first invitation was kind of like our save-the-date invitations nowadays. You know, in the future, at such and such a time, there's going to be a banquet. Be prepared to, to come to it. But then there was a, an invitation right on that same day saying, okay, everything's ready, come. Well, these dignitaries refuse to come not just once, but twice. And the second time, 
They get violent. Murder. Again, it sounds a bit like that parable we looked at last week, the, the tenant farmers as well. In, but in failing to honor the prince as their future king, they're rejecting the king, God himself. And not surprisingly, in the parable, the king rejects them as well, not only forbidding them from entering the banquet, but sending his army to destroy them and their city. I'd again suggest that they knew he was talking about them. That was the phrase that we saw at the end of the parable of the tenants last week. They knew he was talking about them. I think they knew, once again, he was talking about them. And Jesus has the audacity of saying that by rejecting him, even planning to arrest and kill him, the religious leaders were dishonoring God and rejecting the invitation to God's kingdom. They, and, and um, Matthew, or in Luke in particular, in the previous parable, uh, and Matthew, through most of his parables, identifies the they with the high priests, Sadducees, and much of the Sanhedrin. They had rejected Jesus' call to take upon themselves the yoke of God's kingdom, to, take, to accept God's rule over them, his kingship over them, and as a result, God would reject them. That's what Jesus is saying here. But there's perhaps more. Because this isn't the first time this has happened. The previous rejection of God by the religious leaders, according to the prophets in the Old Testament, resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 586 B.C. at the hands of the Babylonians. The prophets talked about Israel's idolatry, but they laid a lot of the blame at the feet of the religious leaders who said they were leading Israel astray. And as a result, the prophets said, your temple will be destroyed, your God's city will be destroyed. And it happened in 586 B.C. And they clearly saw that as God's judgment on them. Well, Jesus may be laying the future destruction of Jerusalem and the temple at the hands of the Romans in 70 A.D. at their feet as well. Jesus is saying there's nothing new under the sun. It's happening again. Your religious leaders are leading the people astray. And there's going to be the same result, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But we miss something important. If, and some would say the whole point of the parable, if we stop here. Now this is kind of where the parable of the tenants stopped. Up to this point there's There's a lot of parallels between the two. But now there's there's another element to this parable. Because others are graciously invited to the banquet in their place. Both good and bad, we're told. In fact, Jesus has already been inviting them. The good, maybe they would consider the disciples of Jesus good, Certainly would consider people like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, both who were part of the Sanhedrin, as good. But Jesus has also been inviting what many would consider the bad. Tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. Such people had taken God's kingdom rule upon themselves and welcomed the invitation. And Jesus had already stated that in the previous chapter. In Matthew 21, verse 31, he says, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. 
For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So Jesus now tells this parable, and it fits what he had just said previously to them. The, the supposed bad people, the supposed sinners, are entering the kingdom before you. You know, Jesus was constantly called on the carpet for associating with or eating with such people, the outcasts of that culture. So now he explains by parable something of the character of the kingdom. It's not just for the religious hierarchy who think they already have a claim on the kingdom. It's for common folk, outcasts even. God's generosity overflows in welcoming them through no virtue of their own. And they have no problem in accepting his son, their prince, and his rule over them. So today, what category do we fit in with regard to those who have been invited into the kingdom of God? Have we welcomed that invitation? But in Jesus' little proverb at the end, it's not just about many being invited, but about few being chosen. And he also deals with that in the parable. He seems to be saying, however, if, even if you're invited, there are certain standards to meet. You know, I'll, I'll, as I recall it, outside the Gerald Ford funeral at the, at the local church in Grand Rapids, people were invited to crowd outside and watch. It was an invitation. They were allowed to be there. But even then, some were removed. Protesters who, who misused or abused the gracious invitation. Well, the same thing happens in this parable. It happens with clothing. Someone shows up and he doesn't have wedding clothes on. Now, this may be the most puzzling part of the parable, and I don't think there's a lot of concrete answers we can give. We know from the culture that sometimes the host would actually provide wedding clothes, robes, and those robes are referred to in the book of Revelation. It talks about the wedding of the lamb and his bride, the church. But even if they didn't provide, guests would know that they're supposed to come with the appropriate attire. Now in this parable, one man came Either he was inappropriately dressed or he had refused the offer of wedding clothes, whatever it is. And that leads to all kinds of speculation. Many questions arise about the clothes and the man. Do the wedding clothes represent repentance? They represent righteousness? Is the man one of the rejected dignitaries who tries to sneak his way in? Is he from Jesus' own community, one of the disciples that have fallen away, maybe Judas? You're always in trouble when you try to take one of Jesus' parables and, and take every little thing in that parable and try to make a one-to-one -one correlation. It doesn't work that way. It's called reading it as an allegory. And it always falls apart at some point. So you have to be careful. It's really impossible to know, but, but I don't think that's Jesus' point. I think Jesus' point is very clear. And that is, even if invited to God's kingdom, you cannot come in on your own terms. Even if you're invited to God's kingdom, many are invited, but you can't come in on your own terms. Many are invited, but few are chosen. 
So it's not simply the outright rejection of Jesus that limits one's participation in God's kingdom. Remember, for Jesus, the kingdom is accepting God's rule over your life and living how he wants you to live. Or it is accepting Jesus not only as your Savior, but also as your Lord. This sounds actually the tougher part of the parable. Those who would never think of rejecting Jesus often think nothing of demanding the kingdom on one's own terms. My works versus the work of Jesus on the cross. My schedule, my plans for my life versus God's plans for my life. Jesus talks about how hard it is to truly be part of the kingdom. It's like like a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle. Whether it's because of your wealth, your love of money gets in the way, or, or maybe uh, your time crunch. No, I just don't have time for church right now. I just don't have time to, to serve in that way right now. Or your pride. I can do it myself. I'm an adult. I don't, I don't need to keep going to Bible studies and things like that. I've, I, I've achieved my peak. It's fairly easy to welcome Jesus to be your Savior. It's much harder to give your life to him as your Lord. To say, I want to live the way you want me to live. God's invitation to welcome his kingdom rule in our lives comes to each and every one of us, whether a dignitary or a common Joe, whether born and raised religious or, or just hearing the invitation for the first time. The king has invited you to the banquet of his son, the prince. Have you, will you, Welcome him to be the prince of your life. Let's pray. Father God, our King, we come before you through the Prince Jesus, thanking you for what you have done for us, thanking you for even allowing us to be part of your kingdom. Help us in this week not only to accept Jesus as our Savior, but to continue to give our lives over to him as our Lord so that our lives might be noticeably different in the eyes of our community and the world, that people will know that we are children of the King. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond by rejoicing that the Lord is King. We'll stand and sing the four stanzas.